On this episode of the Ordinary Faith Podcast, I talk with Joanna Jackson about coming home. everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Ordinary Faith Podcast as we continue to learn together what it means to pursue a life of ordinary faith in God's extraordinary grace. I'm so grateful that you're here with me on this journey. I love having these conversations and being able to share them with you. And I really love when I get to hear back from so many of you about how these conversations are encouraging and challenging you along the way in your faith journey. And so feel free, as always, to reach out and let me know what's resonating. That's really helpful as I shape uh, podcast episodes in the future. So if you're looking to contact me, you can always head to my website, danieljackson.us, and you can connect to my social profiles there or uh, head over to my contact page and shoot me an email. Would love to connect with you and, again, hear what's encouraging you. Before we get too far into this episode, I just wanted to make a quick reminder. If you listened to last week's episode, which was with uh, Darina Williamson, we mentioned her three children's books, Colorful, Thoughtful, and Graceful, that are just really powerful books that adults get to read to kids and and learn things about diversity, learn how to talk about um, grace, learn how to talk about hospitality with children, some really important conversations. And again, I was so encouraged by by that conversation with Darina and by the work that she's doing. Um, We've got a a giveaway for you. listener. So if you want to win a complete set of those three books, all of them autographed by Dorina herself, um, you can do that, but you have to act really quickly. I'm going to do that drawing on Thanksgiving Day 2019. So if you are listening to this episode as it releases or on Thanksgiving Day or before Thanksgiving, you still have time to enter um, those autographed copies of Darina's books. The way to enter to win is to head over to my website. Again, it's danieljackson.us and click on the subscribe button and just make sure you're subscribed to the mailing list. That's all you need to do. I will uh, pick one subscriber to the mailing list who will win the three autographed copies of Darina's books. So if you get this podcast in time and you want to win those, head over to my website and sign up to the mailing list. Now, you all know that I love to start each episode by talking about what's good and uh, how I'm seeing God at work and present in the small little ordinary things in my life uh, to encourage us all to do the same thing and to be aware of God's presence. So let's go ahead and talk about what's good. What's good. Today is really simple. You know, last week I hit you with something pretty heavy during the What's Good segment. Today is simple and lighthearted, and man, it is good. Uh, so we had some friends over to our house this past weekend. We've got kind of a, a small group or life group, whatever you want to call it, from our church that gathers up every couple of weeks, and we just spend time uh, as families together, letting our kids play together. And, uh, occasionally we get to talk about some pretty deep things if the kids give us a little bit of space. And I don't know exactly what happened in my basement, but there was, uh, gosh, I, I think there was maybe eight kids. Uh, under the age of 10 running around. Uh, And my son is one of the younger ones. He is getting close to five years old. Um, and at the end of the evening, all these kids come up and they're running around upstairs and parents are trying to wrangle shoes on and get the kids out the door. Uh, and my youngest son, Matthew, is running around uh, singing, who let the dogs out? And I'd never heard him sing that before. So this was obviously something new that he just learned that evening, I think, from his friends because uh, I'd never heard him singing that before. And since then, uh, he's been really, really into it and has wanted to listen to that on on the radio or have me pull it off of uh, the Apple Music. And so he 
he's been really into that. And every once in a while, as he's playing with toys, I will hear him break into the who let the dogs out chant. So he's kind of had that rattling around in his brain for a few days. And I was uh, I was at the church last night. We had a kind of an event at our church and um, I was really, really busy all day long. I mean, I, I literally went nonstop from 4 a.m. until 9.30 at night and just kind of fun day, a good day, but one of those really long, really busy, exhausting days. And as we were getting ready for the event to start and my wife had, I didn't even see them. She had left work and picked up kids and were driving kids all over the place to where they needed to go. She sends me a random text and I just started rolling because all she sent was these words. She said, Alexa, play Who Let the Dogs Up and turn it up to a thousand. And all I could do was imagine my little son saying that, which apparently he exactly did. And he he got Alexa to play Who Let the Dogs Out and cranked the volume and just started running around chanting in the living room, probably annoying the heck out of his older brother. Um, and I just got such a kick out of that that one text message. I couldn't compose myself when I was trying to talk through some stuff um, to some people during uh, during our event. And it just really, really made my day to hear that from my son, to get that little text message. And I'm reminded in that just of the the joy in really, really little things. There is obviously nothing at all that is super spiritual or maybe even super edifying about that song, uh, Who Let the Dogs Out? And yet, man, there is something super spiritual about the joy of children and the laughter of children and the love that kids have and what they can bring. Uh, and we, when we don't get too busy to, to ignore that and to push them aside and just enjoy the moment of the simple, the simple childlike wonder and joy in life, there is such goodness. And that is the presence of God. And again, like I said, I was, I was in the middle of a busy day and I had so much going on and kind of carrying a lot of weight with some different things. Um, to see that text come through and to feel that joy from my son, knowing that that really is the heart and the love of God through that, I was just so, so happy and so encouraged. And I'm still laughing about that text message, uh, imagining him running around my living room with with Alexa blaring in the background. Um, so that that made my heart happy. It's a pretty simple one, but man, it made me uh, feel a whole lot of love for my son, for my family, and for my God who gives us those kind of joys. So today, who let the dogs out? That is what's good. Now, let me tell you something. I am so excited about today's guest. In fact, I have been looking forward to this interview for about a year and a half because when I launched the podcast, this was one of the conversations I knew I wanted to have at some point. So there's a lot of reasons I'm really excited for this episode today. And one of them is because the guest today is my sister. I get to introduce you to somebody who I have known for her entire life, and she is an absolute gem. So you are really, really going to enjoy meeting and hearing from my sister, Joanna Eckert Jackson. Uh, But I also want you to know that what we are diving into uh, is really not lighthearted at all. It's actually really, really heavy stuff. We're going to be talking about her experience and her battle with mental illness and bipolar disorder and even uh, suicidal thoughts and ideations. And so uh, I just want to let you know on the onset of this interview that we are going to get into some heavy things regarding mental illness. And so if that feels like it's something that might be triggering for you, if that feels like not a safe conversation for you to be listening in on, I just want to let you know that maybe you want to bow out at this point. Or maybe if you've got little kids around listening, this you may want to push pause on it and wait to dive into this conversation until um, you have uh, maybe not li- little ears listening in. However, I do think this is a really, really important conversation, and I think it's a really powerful conversation. And so um, if you're not going to be bothered by it, I really hope you will lean in and listen and hear from Joanna about her experience and what she has to say to all of us. So the conversation about um, faith, about mental illness, 
about suicide, uh, it's a really, really important conversation for us to be having. And I know that this is a path that my sister has walked um, for most of her life and for her entire adult life. And I had reached out to her and asked if she would be willing to go into this conversation really vulnerably and publicly to let people hear her journey. And she said yes, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, She is an incredible, incredible woman, and I always looked at her from a distance uh, as we kind of grew out of the home and went to college in our separate ways. And uh, I just, she has so much talent and joy and she has so many gifts. And I am really, really grateful that one of her gifts is her life and her story. And she is willing to share that with you. So uh, this this conversation, it might be a little longer than normal because I wanted to give Joanna all the space to, to say what needed to be said. And so, but again, I think you are really going to be uh, encouraged and challenged and moved by this conversation. So go ahead and, and lean in and listen. And here is my conversation with my sister, Joanna Jackson. Well, friends, I am so incredibly glad to be with my current guest today. Um, Probably the favorite guest I've had so far on the podcast because she's my sister. (laughs) (laughs) This is my sister, uh, Joanna Eckert Jackson. Joe, say hi to everybody. Hi. <laughs> so Joanna is in Denver area. Where are you exactly? In Aurora, Aurora, That's Colorado. Right. Aurora, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, and you have been living out there with husband and children for a while. So tell us, tell our listeners mm-hmm. a little bit about yourself and who you are and your family and what it is that you're up to here in, well, not here, there in Colorado. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm Joe, and I was born and raised in Ithaca, New York, and um, but now I live in Aurora, Colorado, and um, I'm married. I have two daughters. They're ages six and three. And they're adorable. They're adorable and <laughs> full of energy and life. <laughs> um, and I work in nonprofit ministry. I work for three different nonprofits right now, and I homeschool my daughters. So life is very full. <laughs> but, you yeah. stay busy. And so listeners, <laughs> um, if you want to know how obnoxious and mean I was as a young child, I'm sure you could um, follow up with Joanna at any point after this <laughs> interview. Um, and she will have hopefully some good things and probably a lot of bad things to say about <laughs> what it was like growing up with me <laughs> as an older brother. Um, uh, but so Joanna has a lot of life and a lot of energy. And she is someone that she and I are very much of the same spirit because we have a family of really, really smart people, I think. <laughs> and for a while, I always felt like um, the outcast a little bit because uh, a dad who's an engineer, a brother who is a um, chemist, uh, what epidemiologist, epidemiologist. Yeah, epidemiologist mm-hmm. and another brother who's yeah. a physicist. And I was an English major and worked at a coffee house. And Joanna also <laughs> was an English major. So um, she and I are uh, cut from yeah. the same cloth in that regard. Um, so, but the reason Joanna and I are talking today is because she's just got a really, really powerful story that I think is important. I think it's going to resonate and I wanted to share it. I wanted her to be able to share it, but also, um, from the context of, of how she experienced, uh, her life over the last decade or more, and also what it looked like for me as a brother, seeing things on the outside. And, mm-hmm. and, and so just to kind of maybe just jump right into that, I, you know, you and I obviously grew up in the same house and I was a couple years older, went away to college. And at the time I just knew you as my younger sister and you and I had a lot in common. Uh, we danced a lot together and joked around together and probably fought a lot because our temperaments were somewhat similar <laughs> at times. Um, but 
that's what I knew of you. I knew this kind of happy, creative uh, girl who was always involved in things. And, and that, from my appearance, as I went to college and even out of college and got married and watched you from a distance, saw you living that way. You got really involved when you went to college kind of in Lindy Hop and swing dance stuff and traveled literally the world to you were in Mexico and Australia doing doing dance. And so I what I saw from the outside was somebody who just I thought was the same as she had always been, just super creative and enjoying life to the fullest. Um, so so go go back there to that sort of time period, I guess you would have been, you know, late teens, early twenties during that time frame and you know, talk about that experience, what you were doing in terms of dance and whatever else, but but maybe what was going on underneath that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting for me to hear even your perspective um, <clears throat> of what you saw, because my tendency is to think that everybody knows somehow magically yeah. what I'm going through. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, but um, I discovered the Lindy Hop when I was 17, right before, um, right before I started college, and that become my became my whole life, my whole yeah. focus. So I was going through school. I was making sure, you know, trying to get decent grades, but I was just really passionate about um, Lindy Hop and Charleston, and I was always taking classes and started doing competitions and was very involved socially with my group of friends who are all dancers. Um, So definitely my lifestyle and on the outside, that's what it looked like. Um, It was very full and busy as a college student and then starting to travel more and more for dance competitions. And and I started teaching about halfway through college. So then I was traveling to teach dance workshops. Um, But under the service, I, at the same time, when I was a freshman in college, um, I started struggling. I would say the first thing that I really started struggling with was my body image. Yeah. Um, and I had the usual <laughs> or the very common um, freshman 10, freshman 15, um, just a change in even a change in my body shape as I was maturing yeah. from a teenager into a woman um, and not expecting that. Um, and getting really involved in dance at the same time. So I was very aware of my body and how it felt um, and how my clothes felt and everything like that. And so, um, so I started struggling just with um, my body image when I was a freshman. Um, And that from there grew to where, when I was a sophomore, um, when I look back, I can see that I had, um, really, I went through a period of time of very severe depression. I was Mm. um, on the outside. I was always engaged and happy and having fun. But the moment I would come home to my apartment, um, I was a completely different person. I was just a wreck. I felt um, just this whole drop in my soul. Mm. Um, I felt alone and and desperate. And I, I hated, physically just hated my presence, like Mm. the existence of my body. Um, And I hated the way that my body felt. It was very much linked to the way my brain worked and the way my body felt. Um, And so I would come home and just be in this this, um, pit of depression anytime that I was alone. Um, And I wouldn't want to get out of bed. I wouldn't want to deal with anything. But then I would go back out into the world and all of that was separate the way I felt by myself. And then the way that I was with my friends, I had no clue. I didn't even know the term depression. I didn't know that's what I was going through. Yeah. And just so for a little bit of context, this was late 90s, 
correct. Yep. <laughs> yeah, about late 90s. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I certainly don't recall, you know, and again, I'm just two years, is that right? Two years older than you, I think? Two or three, something like that. Three, I, I think. Lose, I lose track. <laughs> uh, a couple years older, but but certainly yeah. at the time I was in college as well. And don't I don't recall um, conversations around mental health at all. I mean, I other mm-hmm. than, uh, you know, de- eating disorders would have been something that maybe I think we learned a little bit about in school at some point, but there was just sort of, um, it, it wasn't talked about much. And I did, I do recall having a friend um, in high school who passed away, who took his own life at one point. And that was the, f- that, that was the first time anything like that came up close to me. So I just, I mean, I, I, I think we just didn't have language or understanding of it yeah. at that point. And it's, uh, it's really curious that you, that the way you described it about how you could be with people and through your day. And that was one thing and were, did you have an awareness? Because I, I asked this question because I, I've felt the same way at times too. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder like when you're with your friends and when you're going about your day and that stuff, did you have this lingering overhanging awareness that something was underneath or was it really almost this switch that was on and off of the the public self and then the moment you walk away from that and turn it off, just the, the quiet was was uh, despairing. Is that the right word, despairing? Yeah, um, it was despairing, yeah. Um, I would say I did have an awareness, especially as the years went on and, and it became, the worse that it got, um, the more it became part of me in the rest of my life. But it wasn't something that I had any words to talk about. I didn't know anything that you should talk about it. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, and somehow I just played off of the energy of other people. And so my mood would actually improve being around other people and then it would drop um, when I was away from, hmm. from the crowd. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it's interesting that you describe it that way. Cause I, I went through a season about a year and a half ago, maybe longer than that. And, and, and it was probably situational, um, more than anything. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what was going on. I think there was definitely something spiritual to it for me, but it was the same way I could go and I could be at work and do, do all the things and mm-hmm. feel totally fine and genuinely laugh and, and love, the people I was around all day and then I would get in my car and drive home and feel a void and feel desperate and would get home and just mm-hmm. could barely do anything other than lay on the bed um, yeah. and had to learn how to recognize that something there wasn't right. And fortunately, my wife helped pull that out at times and mm-hmm. we processed through. And But so, yeah, interesting that you described that the same way. And so as you were in the middle of that, um, you know, this kind of age, as you would say, at 17 to 22-ish, um, kind of suffering in silence on your own, what, what you, you know, as you started to realize that something wasn't there, how did, how, how did you continue um, to live and, and how did that, what we might look back now and, and say depression uh, and certainly the issues with body image, what, what continued to happen and how did that have an impact on your life? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's amazing to me when I look back. Um, it's amazing to me that it was five years of what I call the silent years. So it was five years um, before, um, like you said, that before I had any kind of a diagnosis, before anything came out in public with, with anybody. Um, and I can't believe, <laughs> sometimes I'm hard on myself, but yeah. I think that's incredible strength that God gave me that God was with me to spend that long um, in silence and not understanding what was going on as things were getting worse. And so it was a progression to where um, I had, you know, started dealing with um, going through periods of time of severe depression um, and then started, you know, I I had the body image issues, but then started um, 
just trying to deal with them through food and um, through restricting and, and other ways. And so my eating disorder just it started small and it, and it grew. Um, again, I didn't know. We had learned, like you said, yeah. we learned about anorexia and bulimia when we were in high school. Um, and how I was relating with food, I had no idea um, at the time that um, that it was disordered behavior, disordered thinking about myself and about yeah. my relationship with food. Um, so that you really can't minimize how much um, when you have that kind of a relationship with your body and with food, it takes over everything. Yeah. Um, it, it impacted every relationship, every social situation. There was always thought behind whether, you know, how I was interacting with people. So that side plus the depression. Um, and by the time I was a senior in college, then um, I was just feeling so desperate and hating myself so much and mm. so confused that I, that's when I started to become suicidal and start having suicide mm. ideations at that point. Um, mm. And so, yeah. and you still, at, at what point had you, I mean, first of all, I think I, you made a really powerful point that looking back on that, to know that you suffered for five years in silence, not having words, not having language and not having really the ability to bring anybody else into that to, to help understand it, to help um, look at it, to help carry the weight. So to have five years of, of that kind of depression, that kind of um, quiet hatred of self at times, um, like you said, that's, I think there is an incredible strength and presence of God. And I, you know, I'm just reminded of, you know, Isaiah, I think Isaiah 53, where, uh, where, where the prophet says that when, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And they'll not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you, you won't be burned and the flames shall not consume you. And I just think, man, that must have been so that, – that, that sticks out to me that you were walking through the flames and you were kind of carried through that – the waters of just this raging depression at times. But And yet still God wasn't letting you be overtaken by it and was with you. And so he had a presence and had a strength in there. It's, that's a really powerful – reminder that even in our lowest, <clears throat> excuse me, even our lowest moments, we don't, we really never are alone. Um, and we can't see it, we can't feel it sometimes, but we're not. Um, so again, I, as a senior, you said you started having those ideations of suicide. At, at what point did you first, were you first able to reach out for help or have somebody see something to say that they, I, I don't even know how that worked for you. Did somebody reach to you and say, hey, I think you need help? Or did you reach out to somebody? What was the first point where you actually brought somebody else into what you were experiencing. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a senior, I did try to reach out one time. There was um, the mom of a friend of mine, um, for whatever reason I felt, um, I called her up one night and I told her, um, I just told her I was really sad and I didn't know what to do. Mm. And she had me come over to her house, um, maybe the next day or something like that and made a connection. Um, but that was really it. She didn't. Um, she probably didn't have the tools or knowledge really to know how to follow through. Or I tend to not express myself. You know, I yeah. probably didn't tell her really how bad it was. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that was the only time that I had tried to reach out to anybody. Um, and it really, I didn't end up getting help until um, a year after college. Um, when now I didn't have the structure of school anymore. And so right. I started just kind of, I moved probably three times um, 
you know, across the country and, and back and just trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life um, now that I was out of school, but being so sick um, during that time. Um, and so I was actually back in Ithaca and had um, and had gotten into trying to solve things through self-harm and I had an eating disorder and I would just drive away in the middle of the day just mm. to get away. I would miss work um, yeah. because I, just, I didn't know what to do with myself. I had no idea how to process the feelings um, that I had. And so I had kind of a major breakdown where I got in my car in the middle of the night and just drove um, I don't know how many states away, <laughs> six wow. or seven states away until my car broke down in the middle of winter and I had, I feel literally couldn't go anywhere. Wow. And I, um, stayed overnight in a, the home of a mechanic because I had no money. So it was a really, really, wow. that was when it came thundering out into all of my friends. You know, everybody saw at that point, yeah. something was wrong. Yeah. Um, so my parents knew they could step in and that was really, it had to be dramatic for me. Um, to for people to have any awareness and for anybody to step in at that point. So that was the first time that um, your parents, our parents, mm -hmm. were aware and yeah. kind of. They, I mean, I would guess they had seen maybe some of the restlessness, um, probably, and I don't know if they had mm -hmm. would have seen anything else personality-wise. But like you said, something drastic before really be able to recognize that that something wasn't wasn't quite right. So, mm -hmm. um, so you're early 20s at that point, you know, to the point where you're literally just aimlessly dri driving yeah. and <laughs> running away to nowhere, running away to nowhere with no <laughs> yeah. plan, which, yeah. you know, you can laugh at, but it's actually yeah. scary. And, um, yeah. um, yeah. And, and actually, again, there's probably a lot of protection that was even there that you stayed in the house of, <laughs> of a, mm -hmm. a strange mechanic and, yeah. um, are still here to, to be able to tell that story, you know, not that all mechanics yeah. are bad or like, don't do certainly this at home. I know don't some wonderful care. mechanics, yeah. but yeah, that that's not necessarily a recommended path. Um, no. so was that the low point or, um, did it, were there other points where it, it um, you know, you talked about s suicidal ideation at what point did you ever really dive like, like how far did you go? Was that driving away the low point or did you continue as people started to reach in and recognize something was wrong? To, you know, talk us through that, that, okay. that season. Yeah. Um, that, I would say that was the first extremely low point. Okay. Um, and I had many, um, yeah. you know, sometimes it's easier to just simplify life when we look back and say, Oh, there's this one thing. And then everything started to get better after that. Well, yeah. for me, it was so many times where things would start to get better for a little while. And then I would just completely crash and, and do something, um, crazy, but you know, it wasn't crazy in the sense that I just had no idea what to do, yeah. um, and how to, how to survive. Um, and so, yeah, it was, um, a year or two later, um, I had been in and out of treatment. It's very hard. Um, I had gotten a, the diagnosis, so I was diagnosed with bipolar two disorder, diagnosed with an eating disorder, um, and so I'd gone into um, like an eating disorder tr treatment facility for a while. Um, but there's just this part of me that didn't want to let it go, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and so there's always that battle, can wanting you, to be healthy and not. Can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? That's a really profound thing. Like you were in the treatment for it. You knew it was a problem and there was a party that didn't want to let it go. Is there, do you have any more words to be able to unpack that? 
Yeah, um, it had such a stronghold on my mind and how I processed everything through life um, that I knew that I went into treatment because my life just felt so chaotic and I didn't know how to have any control and um, and because I was so depressed. That was one of the reasons why we had me go is just to that if if from the. <laughs> from my parents and therapist perspective, if, if food could get kind of normalized, um, then that would help chemically my brain to start functioning better. Mm. Um, and so it was good for me to, to go and to receive treatment and to start to learn. Um, but it was the very beginning of a learning process of me, for me. Yeah. Um, I was nowhere near ready to let go, um, of the behavior because it was the only way that I knew. Yeah how to live <laughs> yeah. yeah you know and, and i mean i hear that all the time it's 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 not uncommon at all anybody who's struggling whether it's an eating disorder it's it's these things that we know are damaging um mm -hmm. you know but you can look at any kind of addiction drug abuse alcohol pornography where, where people will know that they want to get out know that mm -hmm. it's destroying them and yet you can start even taking steps towards it and yet we cling to those because it's the normal that we know it's mm -hmm. as, as much as we know that it's not the great place to be, there's some comfort in feeling like that's who we are. And so having to forge different pathways in our brains and in our spirits is really, really, really difficult work. And so it sounds like you were experiencing that. So, um, yeah, so you're talking just about, yeah. you know, kind of these, the waves, it's, it's not a matter of one low point. There's many low points. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, kind of keep processing points. through that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So then, um, so I was in and out of treatment and, and I had been home after that, um, after being, um, in, in the treatment center, I came home, but then I just wasn't willing to keep working with a therapist. So I, I got on a bus and went to New York city and from New York city, I got on a plane and went to Minneapolis and ended up staying in Minneapolis for a year. I just made these decisions. Just, yeah. Um, I think with my bipolar disorder, just whatever yeah. was in front of me. Um, <clears throat> so I was I was out in Minneapolis and then decided that um, maybe if I went back to school and got in the structure of, of a school setting again, um, that that would help me to again to have some structure to start being healthy um, because I just had no idea what, what was happening in my yeah. life. Um, and so I applied to seminary and um, and so I was um, went to seminary out in California in the fall. From um, Minneapolis to California. Yeah. From Minneapolis, yeah, I drove by myself, you know, yeah. through the mountains and all that. Um, just packed up my stuff. And um, so, but I was very sick at that time. Uh, there was even a point in that summer as I was waiting to go to seminary where um, I, my dad had to come out to Minneapolis because I was not safe. I, I, had, I reached out at that point and, and wasn't safe from hurting myself. Mm. And so he came out to be with me. And then I went and stayed um, with our older brother yeah. and his family for a couple of weeks, for about three weeks, because I just wasn't even safe yeah. to be by myself during that waiting period. Um, so I, yeah, out in Seattle. Yeah. So I went out there. So really I was in Seattle and then I was back and then I drove to California, but was hoping that going to school would settle things down. Uh, yeah. But really, I just went into seminary being very sick. Um, and and that was when I would say I am, um, you know, the, the very lowest point of my life, um, getting to the point where it had been going on for so long. I had been 
entertaining thoughts of suicide for so long mm. and just over and over again when I was out there. Anytime I was driving my car late at night, every night pretty much, it was just imagining that mm. and then coming up with a plan, thinking, you know, just going over and over and over that in my mind and then getting to a point. I just got to a point one night um, where I felt so hopeless um, and that that I acted on my plan um, and um, I pulled back at the very last moment hmm. um, and so um, thankfully so I'm, I'm still here thank God um, but I was unconscious for 17 or 18 hours um, wow. I was in my room my, my roommate was gone she was out of town, so I was just in my room. Um, I came to um, just maybe 18 hours later. I'd been completely blacked out um, and stumbled down downstairs. And she had been she had come home at that point. And so when I was able to stumble down the stairs, then she called the ambulance and they took me over to the hospital. And um, and that night was actually so. It was that night in the hospital that was, I would say, was the worst night of my entire life. Mm. Um, and it's just a very awful place to be in. And um, there was, it was a busy hospital. Um, it was kind of the opposite of what you might think that um, kind of the support or counseling or anything that somebody yeah. might receive when they've just tried to take their life. I was locked into a room. Mm. Um, it was like a double, it was like a prison cell. There was nothing in the room except for a cot yeah. and a video camera on me and then double locked doors. Um, and I was just left there for a couple of hours and my mind was crazy. It was not thinking straight and um, <clears throat> it was just extremely empty and low and then, and then was moved over and again, put in the locked, um, the psychiatric ward, which actually I was put in a geriatric psychiatric ward because the regular one was full. Oh, so man. I was with um, old people old and people it was who just grew up doing the Lindy Hop when they were younger. So <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. But yeah. um but there was no there, nobody was checking. I think they gave me some medication. Um and I think I actually had a really bad reaction to the medication. I think that was part of why that night was so horrible was because mm. um I felt uh, terror. Like I was lying in the bed. I was by myself. There were no nurses or anything coming in to check check on me. You know, you have your little tiny hospital blanket and yeah. staring at this blank concrete wall. And I had this terror of of falling into an abyss. Um, and I was afraid to fall asleep. And so just hour after hour after hour, all night, um, nobody even knew that I was there. You know, none of my family knew wow. I was there and I was just alone. So when I think of just the bottom of yeah. <laughs> emptiness and aloneness. Um, it was, it was that period of time. Yeah. I can't, I can't really imagine being any more isolated and alone mm -hmm. than that. Um, mm -hmm. so what do you, you know, so what does coming back from that look like? And, um, you know, I recall at the time I was, um, in Michigan with, you know, starting my family and we were working at a church and I was, um, serving at the time on, on the board of elders or directors, I guess, in that church denomination they would have been called. And um, I recall very, very clearly, I, I don't know if it was that particular evening or if I had just found out, but um, 
talked to our mom, and she had mm-hmm. called and kind of filled me in with whatever information about that she had about your experience and, and what was happening. Um, and I just remember being at a, a board meeting with our elders, and basically just we we sat around and and just wept and prayed, and that that was my recollection of seeing that that was the first I, I'd known there was some things going on and I, I you know you know but basically by the time I went to college we were separated you know mm-hmm. by geographically separated and you, of course you were separated from everybody jumping around from <laughs> city to city and nobody ever knew where yeah. you were yep. um, but um, but but seeing at a distance and knowing that there I, I knew that there was the bipolar I knew that you had been struggling and that was something we were aware of um, and yet you know to hear that news um, I, it, it took everything out of me, I remember. And so mm-hmm. um, h- how did you come back from that, that lowest point of being alone um, and having to deal with the aftermath of em- emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, just all of that? W- what, did, what did coming back from that look like and how did you begin to process and find uh, help and what did help look yeah. like? I, I actually tried to stay and continue in school for a couple of weeks, but um, but I was really traumatized at that point. And yeah. I think the medications they put me on, that this terror, I was experiencing it every night. So um, thankfully, I you know I, I called our parents and they brought me back home. And mm-hmm. I just laid on the couch for a couple of weeks. Literally, I couldn't do anything. It yeah. was like my brain was dead. Um, I think it was so traumatic for me what I had been through and. Um, I couldn't read a book or or do anything like that, but it was a safe space. So my parents, um, they provided a safe space. They let me just be (laughs) and, um, and then slowly started putting into place, getting me back into treatment again, getting me back to seeing a psychiatrist and getting on meds. Um, and so each time that I've had, that I had had these kind of major episodes, um, that would usually then spark that I would go home or my parents, our parents yeah. would step in and then, then we would find some treatment. Um, but even at this point, I still didn't understand. Um, I still struggle with kind of <laughs> understanding and accepting that I have bipolar disorder <laughs> and that I need to always, you know, continue to have treatment for that. So I certainly didn't understand even after, um, that experience. So I got, I started to get better. I was doing better for a while, but then, then I moved out to Seattle and then I moved to Australia and then I moved back to Ithaca and then I moved back to Australia and then I moved to Seattle and I was just, my life was chaotic. Um, I was on and off of medication. I had some really good years or some really good seasons during that time. And, uh, but I was still, my eating disorder was still controlling my whole life. Um, and so I had to have another, I finally had another, um, kind of, breakdown point um, where my behavior was just so bizarre when I was in Seattle um, again that um, I came back I was visiting my parents and I said I don't know what to do because Mm -hmm. I'm destructive I'm you know just thinking these destructive thoughts I'm just actually destroying property in the place where I'm living um, because so not thinking straight Um, I said I don't know what to do and dad said come home Hmm. that was two words from our dad he said come home and so I did. So that was at 27. It's hard to come home when you're 27 years yeah. old and wanting to be independent. Um, but they had me commit to staying for a year and not going anywhere for a year. Yeah. 
Um, and so that was really, I would say that was the end of that season of chaos. The beginning of long-term healing was being committed to being at home, see, getting all the treatment um, in place, having a, not traveling all the time for dance. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Wow, yeah. I just hear, um, I hear the voice of God in that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that I'm just thinking the prodigal son of, you know, and you weren't running in the sense that you were willfully, you know, trying to squander what had been given you. Like like in the biblical story that Jesus tells, you weren't you weren't this rebellious child um, seeking only your own pleasure. You were you were but you were a child who didn't know the way um, and had had run and, and looked everywhere to the point where. I could see, I can see you in that story. I can see, I can see myself in that story. But <laughs> literally having a father who says "come home" um, is yeah. so powerful, um, and we have a father in heaven who is always ready to say that to us. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you have this early years of, of, you know, what you, I think you said, the silent years of this this period of time of about five years where you were suffering and quiet and didn't know, and underneath everything, it was chaotic and dark and then you really that that sort of broke out into the external behaviors that people started to see and you mm -hmm. dealt with that for you know another three to five years or whatever and then at 27 you come home but I'm assuming coming home and, and healing is not just a linear thing that <laughs> this is something that um, like anybody who is dealing with um, whether it's mental health or re addiction recovery or any any patterns in our life that, that we're trying to understand and, and submit to God and, and find healing from. I assume it's not just been a, a joy ride in the last, you know, right. decade or so mm -hmm. since then. But what, what does that, this last season of this returning home phase look like? Mm -hmm. And what, is, what does it feel like now? And what is life like? And where have you found joy? And, and where do you see hope? Yeah, um, it really was spiritually coming home and um, I see it as I, I see the same thing um, that I was living like a prodigal even you know I was a child of God the whole time yeah. I was always his child I always loved my father yeah. um, I always loved God loved Jesus but I had a major battle between the two kingdoms in my heart a major battle between living the way of the world and um, living the way that the Bible calls us to and um, throughout most of that time, the battle was waging in me and the world was winning. And yeah. I was processing everything through just living in the world and then holding on to my holding on to my faith. Um, but I even just rebelled against going to church or any of that because it just it seemed so um, separate from the reality of life. So coming yeah. home for me, um, I made a very conscious decision. Um, after a year of treatment, I was looking forward at my life. Um, and I realized that I wanted it to be centered around Jesus. Um, and that in order to do that, I would have to plug in with a church. I would need to do more than just be there once a week on Sunday, that I needed to really immerse myself um, in the people of God and the things of God um, in order to just be with God and to walk with God because I've very much been walking away from him, even though I had had faith and I loved God. Um, I wasn't walking 
in, in the things of God. So coming home for me, um, that the most beautiful thing to me is just looking back at that time and the church family that God brought me to at that point in time. Um, he just poured into me through the teaching of my church, through the relationships there. Um, and I grew so much. And so my faith grew and I started to understand and see my life through the lens of faith and the suffering through the face. So I would say this past, you know, ever since then has been, um, just despite any suffering that I still go through, despite any, um, what challenges I have with bipolar or depression or, or any of that, um, I'm, I'm back home and like you say, in the, in, in the father's house and in his house and under his protection. And I'm trying to, I try to, trying to process all of it in that, in that safe space rather than kind of out trying to solve things all by myself. Yeah. And I think it's important for, for folks to hear that again, you're, you're still processing the the bipolar Mm -hmm. still there. You're, there's still bad days and bad weeks. And, um, but the importance for, for, um, Christ becoming the center and building a faith community and immersing yourself in a faith community because sometimes I think that's one of the first things to go. Um, and a lot of us, it happens in those you know college years when we, if we grow up in a church and, and you have a family church, when you move away, you lose that grounding. And if, if you're not really focused on getting that, but even as adults, it's really easy to get busy and slip away. You move somewhere for a job and it's hard to find a church or whatever reason. But the, the fact that you intentionally made that decision and knew you needed to immerse and, and serve and be served and all of that, that, that's, that was the place that, that grounded you and has, has kept you for, um, for that long is, is, is really important for people to hear. Um, you know, I don't, I, I know we've kind of got to wrap up our time here because you got a husband <laughs> taking care of the girls downstairs <laughs> so you can have this conversation. But um, I guess maybe I'd leave with with two questions uh, as we kind of wrap that up. And, and one would be, um, what would you say first to someone in your shoes? If you could leave just one more, and maybe maybe you've already said it and just want to reiterate something that you've said, but if, some, if there is somebody who is feeling the weight of depression or, or knows that there's some sort of um, mental illness or something that they're dealing with, and, and they might hear this and, and need to hear a word from someone that they're not alone. What would you say to that person? And the next question would be, what would you say to the um, the other, the rest of us who are on the outside who may have friends around us who are struggling? And, and maybe we don't yet identify, but maybe we do. Uh, there were certainly many years where I knew you were struggling, and I didn't know how to how to talk and I didn't have the words, didn't know if it was okay, didn't, you know, so what would you say to people um, if, and again, that, that's pretty generic advice, but if you could say to those who love people who are struggling and then to those who are struggling, um, anything you'd want to leave us with? Mm-hmm. Um, I think starting with those on the, on the outside or those who are around close friends, um, family, acquaintances, um, I think, we know that when people are going through hard times, through grief, um, through anything, it can become very isolating for them. Um, and our tendency, most of us as humans, is to, um, or in our culture, we, we back away mm-hmm. uh, because we don't know what to say. It's uncomfortable. We're afraid we're going to say the wrong thing or that maybe if we bring up their depression or we bring up <laughs> what they're going through, that it's 
going to somehow have a negative effect on them. Mm -hmm. And we, um, anytime that we're on the outside looking in, you know, you can fight against that. You don't, it's more helpful to step in. I would say, don't be afraid to step in um, and to be present with somebody. If somebody has told you, um, you may be the only person or one of the only people who even know that they're struggling and they probably won't even tell you again. They might not ever. Yeah. And it's that hard for them to tell you or for it to come to the forefront. And so um, to be intentional, intentional about just asking, hey, how are you today? How can I pray for you? Um, sending a text every once in a while with a silly meme <laughs> or, like, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, cute little cats or a Bible verse and, and understanding that it's a long journey. And so they're not going to just be fixed in a day and that's okay. It's an yeah. opportunity to step in and be present in somebody's life and to get to know them in a new way, in a yeah. deeper way if you're there. Um, and sometimes the relationships have been stronger with people who are who are unexpected um, and maybe were just an acquaintance for me, but they were the ones who stepped in and so then a bond has been formed. Yeah. Um, so then and as far as anybody going through it, you, you know, <laughs> there, there are no words for what um, everybody experiences so differently. Yeah. Um, their own, your own mental health struggle, what that looks like, how long it's been happening, what your thoughts are. Um, and so I, I want to hesitate to say any kind of like trite phrase yeah. <laughs> or like yeah. some kind of panacea because it's not. Um, but... Um, I had written a blog post just very recently um, after going through some severe depression again, and I was giving these tools. So there are tools that you can use to um, kind of stay safe and to reach out and things like that. Yeah. Um, but then I was hit with another wave and I was lying in my bed and I was um, just couldn't process anything in the world. And I realized I have, I can't even use these tools right now that I thought I was so good at thinking of these great tools. And all I could think in that moment was, um, God just reminded me, um, that he's holding me. And there's a verse that I love, um, that it's Isaiah 40, 11. It says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who are young. And so as I was lying there and there was nothing that I could even think to do, I just thought of that picture of Jesus that in that moment, he is holding me hmm. close to his heart. Um, he's holding me. And through all of this, yes, I've done things. I've done work. I've gone treatment. But God is the one who has been holding me um, close to his heart. Even as I struggle and even as I rebel, he has me close to his heart and he loves me. And, and so he, it's that way for you, um, for anybody that as you're going through it and when your life is good, he's holding you close to your heart and he's enjoying the good times. And um, also in those really hard times, just allow God to hold you hmm. until you're ready to stay, take a step to get some healing and get some help. Hmm. Well, it's a pretty powerful way to end. I think that that's uh, advice and words that can apply to all of us <laughs> in different ways, um, mm -hmm. regardless of what we're going through and what our struggles with. Um, I just want to say thank you. Um, it's really, really good to see your face. It's really good to see you <laughs> smile. Um, we don't do this nearly enough, um, <laughs> but um, and uh, I'm really thankful that you are here and that God has held you um, 
and that you have a actual father and a heavenly father who have um, called you to come home. And I'm grateful that you are fighting when you have to fight and curling up when you need to curl up, but that you are continuing to look up and continuing to center around Christ. And I'm really grateful for you being willing to share this story because I know that's not easy. And um, But I do think there are a lot of people who are going to listen to this and really be impacted. And so I'm grateful for your vulnerability to share that. Um, and pray that a lot of people get um, encouraged and impacted by it. So thanks, Joe. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me and inviting opening this conversation. Wow. Right. I told you that was going to be uh, a good and important conversation to have. And I, I think we probably all know people in our lives who are struggling, whether we know it or not, with mental illness. And I think this is really important for us to have these kinds of conversations to know what it's like for someone who is feeling that way and experiencing that and to hear some words of what it looks like for those of us who might be able to reach into those spaces and just the, the willingness to be present and to keep reaching out, to keep reaching out, and to keep being present and walking with people through their dark valleys. So I'm so thankful for my sister and for her willingness to share that story, and I, I know you are too. There's a couple things you could do right now. Uh, if this podcast, if this episode uh, resonated, there there are probably people in your life who need to hear that. And so I would encourage you and invite you to share that, whether you want to send somebody a message or uh, put it up on your Facebook or your Instagram and share that episode for people who need to hear that conversation. Please feel free to go ahead and do that. We would love for you to share that. Um, that's the reason Joanna wanted to, to, to come on today. She wanted, she knew that people need to hear that story and she wanted to let as many people as possible into that and to hear the hope that she has, even somebody who's battling with that kind of uh, mental illness and that bipolar disorder. So there's lots of people who need that hope, regardless of whether they are struggling or we are struggling with the same things she is. The truth and the hope remains the same. So again, if there is somebody in your life or maybe just generically you think people are going to resonate, please feel free to share that. Uh, It would also be great if you could go on and and review this episode. Just head to your Apple podcast and leave a review. Type in a few sentences. And uh, again, that's going to help more people find that conversation. So that's that's one way you can support. Another thing you could do, if you want to connect with Joanna and learn more and hear more and maybe reach out to her, um, there's opportunities to do that on her website. So you can go to jojojackson.com. I'll link that on the episode webpage so that you can find it easily. But she'd be uh, happy to hear from you or have you read more and connect more with her there as well. Lastly, if you want to uh, go a little step further and support this podcast, you can always jump over to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash ordinaryfaith, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can help conversations like this continue to happen and continue to be shared out. So if you want to learn more about how you can participate financially in supporting, just head over to patreon.com slash ordinaryfaith. I think that about does it for today's episode. So I do want to say happy Thanksgiving to everybody, whether you're listening to this uh, right before or on or after Thanksgiving. Grateful for you. I am thankful for this community. Thankful to be able to do this with you. As always, I do want to say thanks to the band Legacies for being the soundtrack to this podcast. You can find Legacies music on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you get your music. And as always, friends, remember, all it takes to bring heaven to earth is ordinary faith and extraordinary grace. 